1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: KCAA Loma Linda. 1050 AM, 106.5 FM and now 102.3 FM. Your NBC Sports Radio update
2: starts now.
0: Closing them out, I'm Jeff Nathanson. In the NHL, the Pittsburgh Penguins closed out the Philadelphia Flyers earlier today, 8-5 the final score. The game was seen on NBC television. The Penguins win the series four games to two and advance in the Eastern Conference Finals or playoffs, I should say. In the West, it's Nashville and Colorado playing tonight. They've played a period in Denver and the Predators lead Colorado two games to none. Nashville looking for the closeout win as well. Let's go to Major League Baseball right now is the Athletics over the Red Sox 4-1. to Boston got no hit this weekend, and they lost the Athletics today. Chris Davis, a big part in the win for Oakland.
2: Uh, getting a good pitch right there, and uh, he didn't get it as far in as what he usually did, and I put a good swing on him. But uh, I was looking to be aggressive, and we knew he was going to crowd in before the game, so we were uh, we were prepared for that.
0: Chris Davis's home run in that game helped the Athletics beat the Red Sox 4-1 for Davis' sixth of the season. Other scores for Major League Baseball just into NBC Sports Radio. A couple of finals. Giants beat the Angels 4-2. That's a final. Brandon Belt had a home run in that game for San Francisco. But what you might hear more about is his 21-pitch at-bat in that game. That one ended with a line out to right field, but 21 pitches is a Major League record for the most at-bat Pitches in one single at bat. So the Giants beat the Angels 4-2. to Cubs beat the Rockies 9-7. The final on that one, Chris Bryant left that game early after getting hit in the helmet with a baseball pitch ball, but he did pass the concussion test, so he does not have a concussion. He did have a little cut over his eye where his sunglasses kind of exploded. Cubs beat the Rockies 9-7. It was the Astros over the White Sox 7-1. to For all the baseball scores, go to NBCSportsRadio.com. I'm Jeff Nathanson, NBC sports radio
2: this is
4: kcaa
3: it's time to shop in the cool relaxed comfort of the tri-city shopping center in redlands conveniently located on the i-10 freeway between the alabama and tennessee exits bring the kids too and watch them play in the only indoor fun center high five indoor playground where parents are welcomed on the playground birthday celebrations are encouraged so make plans for some great fun at the mall more reasons why the tri-city center is called the mall with a heart if you're looking for a full or part-time sales position and you have radio tv or print media experience kcaa has a great opportunity waiting for you that pays the highest commissions in the market KCAA is the only station in the IE that broadcasts on three frequencies, so advertisers receive three ads for one low rate. This makes KCAA a must-buy for every local business. If you're interested in a sales position with us, email CEO at kcaaradio.com.
2: This segment is sponsored by Tammy Sutherland of Coldwell Banker Kivit Teeters Realty, where she makes it her business to put happy people in happy homes. It's Tammy Sutherland's passion to list your house and put you in just the right house that you could call home.
1: She made so much extra effort to sell our house and make sure that we understood every step of the way. Tammy always had our best interests at heart.
2: I didn't think we'd ever find a house uh, we loved, but with Tammy's help, we did. Now I get to mow the lawn every weekend. (laughs) But then again, that's why we had kids. Hey, Tyler.
1: Tammy did way more than we ever expected in a real estate agent. Without Tammy, we would still be renting.
2: So if you want your perfect house, contact Tammy Sutherland at Caldwell Banker, Kiva Teeters Realty in Yucaipa, across from Yucaipa High School. Whether you're looking to buy or sell, it's homesbytammy.net or on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Realtor Tammy Sutherland at 909-556-2094 for Realtor Tammy Sutherland. And we thank her for her support. This segment of programming sponsored by CyberTime Network Communications. How's your internet? Feeling boxed in with the high costs of the internet? Ready for a better internet service? Then you're ready for CyberTime. Yes, there's an alternative to those big corporate internet service providers. It's CyberTime Network Communications. CyberTime is so good they provide all the connectivity for this radio station. Crisp, cool, fast, and sleek. CyberTime uses the latest leading edge microwave technology no wires, no cables, no sharing, and they're able to offer clients a safe, Reliable public or private network that fits almost any budget size. And several cities rely on Cybertime's microwave private network for their most critical mission applications. Get connected. Stay connected. Get smart. Get Cybertime. You can Google, text, or call Cybertime Network Communications at 909 795 9559. That's 909 795 9559. KCAA where every day is a great day.
5: Hey! You got you got to pay back! Thank
6: you for tuning Reveal. in to this edition of Justice Watch with Attorney Zulu Ali. I'm Attorney Zulu Ali with the Justice Watch crew, Rosa Nunez, Michael Bilal Clark, and Dr. Akil Bashir. This week, like we do every Sunday, we will discuss important and critical legal issues affecting our communities. Our guest today is Investigator Ralph Rocha. Investigator Rocha received a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Cal State San Bernardino, a master of science in physical education at Azusa Pacific University, and a law degree at Taft Law School. Along with his academic accomplishments. Investigator Rocha holds a wealth of experience in the investigative field as a licensed private defense and criminal investigator. He has held positions at the State of California Contractors License Board, Statewide Investigative Fraud Team, the California State Military Reserve, and most recently the Orange County Public Defender's Office. Mr. Uh, investigator Rocha has exhibited a continuous passion for criminal justice throughout his working career and currently integrates his extensive experience in criminal and defense investigations as well as criminal law into his collegiate-level criminal justice courses at Azusa Pacific University. All in all, as an adjunct professor, Investigator Rocha is committed to bringing practical, real-world learning to the classroom by enhancing a dynamic classroom environment. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Rocha.
7: Thank you for having me.
6: Today we will be discussing uh, a couple of topics, one will be prosecutorial misconduct, wrongful convictions and plea bargain traps. We will also take a look at some recent news stories including the Amnesty International uh, who presented Colin Kaepernick with the Ambassador of Conscious Award and we'll talk a little bit about the Philly Starbucks case. So first we'll talk a little bit about the issue of prosecutorial misconduct. And for those of you who do not know or there may be people who don't know what a prosecutor mm-hmm. is responsible for, uh, basically a prosecutor, at least at the state level, are considered to be district attorneys, which are state-level uh, elected. Well, they're elected officials, and, in, of course, in this county and in, di- in most states, they're elected for each individual county, and they're responsible for you know, uh, who to convict or who to prosecute Uh, what charges to file, whether they're gonna dismiss a case, whether you're gonna take a case to trial, whether you're gonna settle a case. I mean, a district attorney is extremely powerful uh, because most people think, well, if you get arrested, that that automatically means that you're going to be uh, prosecuted. However, the district attorney has the ability and has the power to make a determination as to who's gonna be prosecuted and uh, what charges are gonna be filed against that individual. Uh, And also, if uh, someone is arrested and the district attorney does not feel like he wants to pursue a case, then the case is not even pursued. And then so we have uh, prosecutors both at the state level and both at the federal level. So basically, a prosecutor is a very, very important individual in the criminal justice system. And now when we talk about prosecutorial misconduct, I mean, what actually does that mean?
7: in terms of uh, a prosecutor uh, acting wrongfully, um, uh, uh, it has a technical definition. Um, So it's something that the prosecutor would do some kind of conduct that the prosecutor would engage in that would um, be prejudicial to uh, a client's, a defendant's case. So a prosecutor could engage in things like withholding exculpatory information. So what that means is any information that might be helpful to a defendant's case, like say, for instance, a prosecutor were to receive information from an undisclosed witness that is favorable to the defense, and they do not turn that information over to the defense. That would be an example of prosecutorial misconduct. Um, But in addition to that, it would also have to be proven that that is prejudicial to the client's case. So it's sort of a two-fold analysis when you look at prosecutorial misconduct. Um, Another example of misconduct, Uh, Might be a prosecutor getting up, uh, getting, having a witness up on the stand, or having the defendant up on the stand himself, and engaging in some kind of uh, conduct where he would uh, berate the defendant, or he would tell the defendant, um, "Isn't it true that you're lying?" Or he would tell the jury, "You know, it's only true that uh, the defendant took the witness stand because he's trying to defend himself and he's a liar." So those are examples of wrongful actions of a prosecutor those are examples of prosecutorial misconduct.
6: One of the cases that kind of always uh, comes to mind for me, I remember, and I don't know if you guys remember, several years ago, it was the Duke lacrosse team Mm -hmm. when they were basically, uh, I think it might have been a sexual assault case. They were charged Mm -hmm. with sexual assault, and uh, throughout the process, it it came to light that basically there was uh, evidence that was actually being withheld uh, and ultimately, in that particular case, the prosecutor was was actually, uh, it was determined that he was engaged in preventing or uh, not disclosing evidence that would have pretty much exonerated all of the individuals that were charged in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that that's kind of a rarity. I don't think that you see prosecutors actually being called out on the carpet like that or actually being put in a situation where they're actually... Held accountable for it, uh, but uh, that's one of the examples that I that I recall as far as the the issues of, of prosecutors being called. Now, do, in your experience, do you think that prosecutorial misconduct is like a isolated thing, or do you think that it's very common?
7: No, I don't think it's an isolated thing at all. I think it's more common than we believe, or that mm-hmm. we want to know, or that uh, than that is what is actually revealed to us. Um, it happens a lot. The uh, Innocence Project uh, did a study, I believe, back in uh, 2010 um, on prosecutorial misconduct, and they found uh, hundreds and hundreds of cases um, just within California alone of prosecutorial misconduct where the prosecutors, um, for the most part, went unpunished. A a small percentage of them were reprimanded. Um, And just recently, in 2016, the state did change the law to make it actually a felony um, for prosecutors prosecutors to withhold uh exculpatory evidence and that 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 came down um from the case of brady uh, versus maryland or maryland versus brady where you know what a brady violation is obviously so um so no it's not as isolated at all um as an investigator i've seen it firsthand you know we can talk we can talk about theory or what we've seen in the news but i've experienced it i've experienced cases where um in when you when you look at the issue of exculpatory information or withholding exculpatory evidence or information, like I said before, that being defined as evidence that would be helpful to the defense or negative for the prosecution, um, you look at not only did the prosecutor have knowledge of it, but did the investigation team have knowledge of it, i.e. the police. So I've had cases where, uh, one case in particular in Orange County where uh, I interviewed a victim, I'm sorry, a witness. And they told me that, um, that the person who was in custody wasn't the shooter, they knew who the shooter was, and that they told the police this in a street contact that, the police, that they had with the police about a week prior, while the police officer never turned that over to the defense. Mm-hmm. So that's a case, that's also a case of withholding exculpatory information, because now you have a defendant or a suspect who's in custody, you have an officer being told by a witness out on the street that it's somebody else, but they don't reveal that. Yeah. So it's not very isolated at all. I think it happens, like I said, more often than we want to believe. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like with prosecutors,
6: obviously it's a, a, an elected position. And typically prosecutors mm-hmm. like to ride uh, a run on the platform that they're going to eliminate crime. And also they run on the issue about their – they boast about their uh, – Conviction rate, that's the big thing with prosecutors. You know, I got a 100% conviction rate or 99% conviction rate. And uh, I believe that when you have that type of attitude and you have an elected official who um, is uh, using the statistics of the win or loss, do you believe that the statistics as to whether someone wins or loses a case tends to be more important? than getting to the bottom of the truth.
7: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that statement. I mean, fundamentally, at the very core, um, for what it is, prosecutors, are, they're politicians. They're elected officials, like you pointed out. They're elected officials, like the sheriff. Um,
0: okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com.
7: No by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. website for details. Interestingly, public defenders are not elected politicians, but they're actually appointed by the, by the respected board of supervisors uh, in whatever county. So, say, let's take for instance Los Angeles County. The public defender is actually appointed by the Board of Supervisors, which means they can be removed um, by the board, uh, whereas the district attorney is not. He's elected by the citizens of the county. So uh, the, the, there's an issue with accountability there. Mm-hmm. There's a huge issue with accountability, whereas they can't easily be removed, like, say, a public defender for misconduct. And then them being a politician, obviously, you know, um, people are people. You know, and people in power are people in power. You know, and um, and you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you can get the vote by showing you're tough on crime, um, yeah, you're. That's going to be your goal. It's going to be it's going to be statistics. It's going to and how do you show that you're tough on crime, but with numbers? You know, in reports and stats and to, and to show your conviction rate. Um, and it's it, 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 it results in um in injustice a lot of people especially minorities um, because they're being prosecuted um, because of policies not necessarily because of what's just and what's not just but because of policies that the DA has Um, and these policies have nothing to do with fairness or justice but they are all aimed at um, at getting conviction rates up in statistics and um, so yeah yeah most definitely I think that that's that's a huge factor. And I think it's
6: interesting when you talk about district attorneys, uh, and it seems like th- there's probably a lot of people that probably don't even know that district attorneys are actually elected officials. And when you talk about issues concerning, you know, uh, things that go on within the community, whether it's talking about the the way in which a prosecutor is doing his job or things that a prosecutor is doing, very seldom. And I, I don't know, and and and. Uh, Doc, you, you know, you, you're, you really got the ear to the community and, and, uh, and uh, Bilal, but you really don't see the community meeting with district attorneys to talk about their problems very often. I, I haven't seen that, you know what I mean? So, in other words, if the community was to get together and, and hold the, the, the prosecutor's feet to the fire when it comes to running for office, do you think that that would make a difference in the way that the prosecutor treated those unrepresented or, or underrepresented communities? You talking to me? Yes, yeah, so? most
7: definitely. And um, it like, it like law enforcement, um, prosecutors use scare tactics. They use scare tactics, you know, and uh, they like to inflate crime rates. They like to inflate what's going on out in the community. Um, and they, they run on that platform that um a tough on crime platform which of course we all want to feel safe in our communities we we all want to see crime uh, go away you know um and we want people who are are quote unquote going to be tough on crime but I think a lot of it is short-sighted you know um to get philosophical you know the answer doesn't lie in higher conviction rates our answers don't lie in locking people up um, our answers don't lie in so what they call selective incapacitation, which means warehousing criminals. Because we've shown, um, statistics have shown that that doesn't work. So we're not holding prosecutors accountable for, um, and I'm talking about you know not only the prosecutors at the the line prosecutors, but I'm talking about these elected officials um, for those types of things. You know, for for being more creative in their approach to to solving society's crime. Um, and, it, and it has to go beyond just warehousing people and locking people up and being tougher on crime. You know, um, there's other creative ideas out there. Yeah. So I know
6: that basically, um, as far as trying cases, the trials that go on, I mean, obviously, when people talk about the um, criminal justice system and the trials that go on and the cases that go on, it's always an issue about winning and losing. Right. I mean, it's a very competitive thing between a prosecutor who's trying to prosecute a case and a defense attorney who is trying to represent his client. And no prosecutor wants to lose the case. And and also, I want to bring up something else that was really interesting, and, and just to kind of clarify, is that basically when you – and I know that you talked about exculpatory evidence, and what we're talking about is evidence that the prosecutor may have that may be um, – Favorable to the defense that could that could allow him to be found not guilty or uh, of the case And also when you talk about policing people don't understand that also Police officers are considered I guess for a lack of a better term Agents of prosecutors so even if they have information that is critical or that's beneficial to the uh, Person who's accused then that information is supposed to be turned over he's responsible for that as well Um, And I think that what happens is when you're involved in a criminal case, that they're responsible for turning over everything that they have to you to allow you to be able to mount the best defense that you possibly can, right? And so uh, when you're looking at at the fact that the, when you look at the competitiveness, now we're talking about you have a district attorney and a district attorney's office employs assistant district attorneys and these individuals are given cases, and they're employed by the district attorney, and their careers are on the line. Now, a district attorney who's giving a case, who, let's just assume you're a district attorney, who's losing cases, right? Now, I mean, it shouldn't be that a district attorney or an assistant district attorney's, you know, performance should be be judged by winning or losing, right? He should basically... Be interested in the fairness because he represents the people, and the people includes all of us. But because his uh, a district attorney who loses a case, at least in my experience, and I know that as an investigator and in being involved in these cases, in your I'm assuming in your experience as well, it becomes really competitive, and you lose sight of the truth, and you focus on winning.
7: Right, yeah, you see that a lot, and you know I, you know I, I was just reading i I don't know if it, I forget which landmark um, decision it was I think it was a landmark Supreme Court decision where the justices said or one of the justices wrote in the um, in, in his opinion that it's not the job of the prosecutor to win cases, it's the job of the prosecutor to bring justice, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of prosecutors lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. You know we do have an adversarial system meaning yeah you the the prosecutor and the defense go in there and they do get out like two boxers would but the prosecutor's job is a little different like you said um it's to bring justice it's not necessary to go in there and just win at all cost and um and you have some prosecutors who have that mentality um and i was watching um a talk show um i believe it was on youtube where um an attorney made a very good point she said I think that we should have sort of an open file system. So we should go beyond allowing prosecutors to turn over um, evidence that they think is exculpatory, and we should just allow the defense to have access to their entire file, case file. And she said, reason being is because um, a lot of these prosecutors are so pigeonholed in their thinking and so one-track minded that they sometimes don't even realize what's exculpatory and what's not. You know they're just so one-track minded. I, they want to get this win, and to them it's just a win. It's a, it's a statistic that they might even lose sight of. Hey, I, maybe this is something that the defense would need to know about or should know about. This could help their case. What really bothers me too um, is a lack of follow-up and a lack of the lack of investigation I see in a lot of in a lot of these criminal cases. I've worked cases where guys were exonerated, guys and girls, defendants, um, just based on sloppy investigation. I would go out, do a follow-up investigation um, and find out that none of the stuff that the officer wrote in the report was true. And it could have easily been discovered had the prosecution went and sent their investigators out to do a follow-up investigation. Now you have some poor guy um, in jail. Um, his whole life has been taken from him. Um, his relationship's are strained. Uh, he might lose his job. He, um, maybe his rent's not getting paid, whatnot. And he's not guilty of anything. You know he's not, be, and there's just and there's a sloppiness, in, in follow-up and investigation. And what upsets me is that there's no accountability. So when even though the guy's exonerated and he's released from jail, what happens to the prosecution? What what is what is the remedy? What's the consequence? And usually there's no consequence. Right.
6: And, and that kind of leads us into the whole idea when we talk about plea deals, and you know prosecutors, oftentimes tend to be the masters plea deal and, and you made a good deal and, I, and I'll give you an example that that I'm thinking about let's just say that you got a gentleman or someone or man or a woman that is accused of a criminal act and let's just assume that as and, and for people who don't know this when you're accused of the criminal act, criminal act typically you're either allowed out on your own recognizance or you're actually given what they call a bail bond meaning that you have to pay a certain amount of money to get out of jail while you fight your case. If you don't pay the bail, then you stay in jail to fight your case. And so oftentimes what happens is, let's just say a person has a $50,000 bond and they're accused of something that they didn't do. And they've been in jail waiting to go back to court for a week. And on Monday, they are going to lose their job, they're going to lose their apartment, and their family is struggling so the da comes to you and says Mm -hmm. i'm you if you plead guilty i'll let you go home today and people don't understand that when you fight your case these cases especially felony cases if you're working up the case properly it takes months and sometimes years to bring these cases to trial Mm -hmm. so if you're going to fight the case are you going to stay in jail for two years fighting a case or are you going to sign that piece of paper just so that you will get out of jail at that point and that tends to be something that's very common when it comes to the plea bargain system I mean it, it, it's a it's a and then what happens is that they they threaten you so in other words they'll say okay today the offer is probation if you don't take the probation today it comes off the table and we're going to offer you two years you know, and, and it's kind of like, you know, when you're thinking about that kind of system where you're you're playing games mm-hmm. with these numbers, not based upon the fact of whether this individual is innocent or not, but they kinda of get you in a point strategically so that they can make you take a plea deal because mm-hmm. you're scared of the consequences. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or they'll say, Well, I'm only charging charging you now. However, if you don't take this deal, then I'm gonna add an enhancement you know here in California we got a lot of enhancements mm-hmm. so they'll put the enhancement on you so now instead of two years then I'm gonna put that 10-year gun enhancement they didn't see the gun but uh, they said they think you had a gun so then I'm gonna put a 10-year uh, gun enhancement on you now you're looking at at 12 years if you don't take this two years and so I mean there's really no fairness in that because if if you don't have the money mm-hmm. to fight your case, you're in a bad position. Yep. If you can't make bail and if you can't get adequate representation, you're in a bad way. And that forces people to take plea deals, right? And, and do you agree with that, especially investigating for a defense?
7: Most definitely. Um, and I think that it's a, a miscarriage of justice um, in that you are, you're, you're getting innocent people to plead guilty because they don't want to stay in jail because they don't have the means to bail out. They don't have the means to hire an attorney. So now it's justice for the wealthy or it's justice for people who have resources or justice for people who have money. But for the indigent, there is no justice. Um, and, if, and, and we get that all the time where you, you, you know, and it's easy um, for lack of a better word to mess with people who are indigent on the street to, to pick up some drug addict or homeless person for some petty violation to lock them up, um, that person has no resources. They're, they're, they're gonna get a public defender. They're likely not gonna be able to bail out. The DA is gonna dangle some carrot in front of them and say, hey, look, um, plead out, give us your DNA, plead guilty to this, you'll get three years probation, uh, you'll get 30 days in jail or some Caltrans or whatever, and, uh, and we'll be done with this case. And maybe this person really believes they have a solid case. Maybe they believe that they're in fact innocent and and they very well might be, but because of that type of pressure, and it it doesn't always have to be that extreme. Um, There's good people who are just working people who don't have means, people who um, are working class people who they just can't pay that 10% bail or whatever that amount is. Um, And they're more inclined to just take a plea, a guilty plea, because they don't wanna deal with this. Either one, they're scared to go to jail because if they're going to go beyond that court hearing and they're not going to be able to bail out, they're going to have to go inside the county jail to fight this case. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are just afraid to go there, yeah. you know. Um, and so what is it, get out today and plead guilty or go fight your case from behind the walls of the county jail, you know. So does innocence really matter anymore?
4: Mm-hmm.
7: I mean,
6: the whole stigma of actually, uh, you know, I, I think that people underestimate the significance of actually just being charged with a crime and not actually being convicted. And and, when I, and the reason why I say that is because once you're charged with that crime, in and of itself, there's, it's punitive in and of itself. It's punitive even without being convicted of the crime. You're still being punished to the extent.
7: With Lucky
1: Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino,
3: with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
6: Where, um, and it could be completely unjust, and, and it could be one person's word against another person. And you're arrested, and you go through this process. And you can imagine that. And when you talk about the Innocence Project, what is, what is important? And I think you probably had more statistics on this. When people are, uh, what is the percentage of individuals who actually end up pleading guilty that actually end up being found innocent later on? Yeah, you understand the question, right?
7: Right, 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 right. Um, I don't have that statistic, but I know it's. I know it's there. I know it's in. It's in the. Um, it's in the literature, and it's in their studies. Um, but that that happens quite often, um, and um, I don't know if you. Yeah, I think the,
6: I think actually the if I'm not mistaken, I mean I know it's really high. I'm going to say that it's either closer to the 50% rate. So in other words, when you're looking at individuals who actually end up pleading guilty and going to jail, and through DNA, through the Innocence Projects, and and other you know uh, reasons are end up, you end up finding that this person is innocent. I mean, that's significant. Mm, Yes. I mean, when you're talking about the the numbers are anywhere between 30 to 50%, I believe, depending on what study you're looking at. But if you're looking at those kind of numbers where an individual literally takes a deal, pleads guilty, goes to prison, and you find, and and we're talking about to the extent of where we found that there's a significant number of false confessions, you know, uh, I mean it, it it's 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 crazy when you think about the fact that once you get charged with a crime that the it, the the deck is stacked against you and it shouldn't be that way a person should be feel comfortable that if you're accused of a crime that basically the evidence against you is at least really significant and I know that in in the state of California when you're charged with a felony and in some cases they have what they call the uh, uh, grand juries where you get indictments or you get a uh, an information from a preliminary hearing where they say that there has to be some sort of probable cause and the threshold is so low that it's just unbelievable that one person can just say you did something and destroy your life Mm -hmm. and what you have to go through in order to exonerate yourself is grueling and it ruins you even the entire process you know right. what i mean and so i mean i don't know what the answer is i mean i know that we talked about accountability and 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 changing uh you know what how we deal with it i mean my my thing i'm looking more towards making sure that the communities understand that you have a right to vote for these district attorneys yeah. And that basically, you're gonna have to really start holding these prosecutors, they're holding their feet to the fire, if they're gonna, ch- if they're in your communities, just like, you know, it, these other uh, public officials, prosecutors tend to kind of like slip under the, you know, oh. under the the radar. You know, if you go and ask the average person who is your district attorney to your in your county, mm-hmm. most people don't even have no idea who the district attorney is. Mm-hmm. They understand that there's people who are being accused of crimes. They understand that when you go to court, but they don't even. Sometimes we don't even really understand the connection, right? And how significant that is,
7: and um, but what what's your input on that? Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that there needs to be more accountability. I don't know if there's a, a clear-cut answer. I know there's been a lot of suggestions. Um, you know, and like you said, a lot of times they tend to go unnoticed. Uh, um, they slip under, I think, the carpet you said. Um, a lot of their activities, a lot of the things that the various prosecution um, agencies engage in. Um, for instance, in Orange County, uh, there was a huge case that was just, I think, uh, Uncovered just a couple of years ago um it was um actually it was actually all over the media it happened in sill beach where a man walked into a, a beauty salon and i believe he, he murdered eight people including his wife his estranged wife that was a clear open shut sort of case the, I, I believe he had confessed to it um they definitely had all sorts of evidence i think he might have been arrested at the crime scene or near the crime scene so here this guy kind of commits a mass killing And that's a clear cut case. Mm -hmm. So the Orange County DA is prosecuting this case. Well, they have a a snitch program, a jailhouse snitch program or informant program where they send snitches or informants into these cells. So they send one into his cell um, to get a confession from him. And this whole thing just blew up. It it Mm -hmm. screwed up the whole case. It was something that was totally unnecessary. What's really ironic about this whole thing is the Guy who committed the murder, the defendant, um, he killed his wife. He killed um, the lady who was actually doing her hair at the time, a beautician. This beautician's husband has been dragged through hell because this case is being dragged out now for who knows how many years, yeah. um, and it can't be resolved because the Orange County DA was actually removed from the case by the judge, by the presiding judge, the judge who was presiding over the case. Uh, when it was totally unnecessary. So you even have uh, uh, one of the victim's husbands saying, why didn't, the, why didn't they just play by the rules? And, and this whole case would have been resolved already. My wife, there would have been justice for my wife had they played by the rules. Um, their whole snitch program, their jailhouse informant program was uncovered. They, um, they said that there's been evidence, or they found evidence that it goes back 30 years, nobody in the community knew what was going on. Huge cover up by the sheriff and the DA um where's the accountability there mm-hmm. you know um they subpoenaed officers or deputies uh, from the sheriff's department to court to testify to that, to this um and they all pled the fifth um and that's interesting to me that a, a police officer who's who's being subpoenaed to court um, as a witness to talk about a jailhouse snitch program that supposedly doesn't exist pleads the fifth mm-hmm. why would you do that unless you believed that you were going to be asked something that was incriminating. So it's it's dirty. People don't realize it. People don't realize that that there's a lot of stuff going out there, going on out there in the system, um, that is not okay. Mm. You know, and it's it's not just. It's not fair. And um, and they like to paint a pretty picture when they run for when they run for uh, their office, when they run for politics, when they run for DA, when they run for sheriff with their ads that they're tough on crime. They're this. They're that. But, um but it goes a lot deeper it goes a lot deeper than that
4: absolutely and i think it's a, a public duty um that we as individuals like you say um know exactly who it is that we actually voting into office you know uh you know bottom line it comes down to us we we, we play a role in this as well you know you, you bring a person up you you have them run for office a lot of times we just take in consideration what we read on paper we don't do the research for ourselves. We just say, we hear someone say, oh, I think this person is good, and we just go along with whoever, you know, suggested this person would be good, and we, we check the ballot, you know, or we check the box. And, you know, um, it, it's been a situation that's been going on for this long, and I don't think any law, because you said a law that was just passed, you know, that would make them accountable. I mean, but how far would that go, mm-hmm. you know, especially with a public official? Mm-hmm. You know, it's – um. And then the statistics, you know, I was just reading the statistics on that, saying out of 2.2 million Americans, two two million of them is plea bargain cases. Mm -hmm. Twenty thousand of them is basically, you know, taking a plea bargain. You know, not even uh, they wasn't even convicted of anything. I mean, they wasn't um, they wasn't um, uh, the twenty thousand just took the plea bargain, just you know. Just to get by. Just to yes, just to buy. So they won't get that life sentence or they won't get that, you know, be away from home that long, you know. So like you say, I think, you know, when it comes down to um individuals not being financially capable of, you know, you know, getting an attorney or, you know, that indigent um that they just basically jump on board, snatch that plea bargain, you know, do the time and get
5: out of jail. You know, so
6: that's right. What do you think about that, dog?
5: Well, you know, when you look at marginalized communities, there's a lot of things that have to be considered. Most marginalized communities, the individuals in those communities are trying to survive at all costs. So many of them don't even vote because of the simple fact that uh, uh, two jobs, three jobs, sometimes the father is not in the house because of the uh, incarceration. The mother's trying to hold down the family. So. When it comes to really having the time to consider who your d a is that's at the bottom of the agenda uh-huh. and uh, I think what has to happen, and this is why individuals like both of you from the legal perspective are so important, there's got to be upfront thinking. We've got to do strategic planning to where we can inform, even though they might not be able to navigate the system, at least if they have an understanding of how the system operates, they'll be able to take some proactive steps mm-hmm. if they're caught in, uh, in, in the legal system or their children are caught in the legal system. Because when you think about it, it's a crisis situation. If I'm going to work two jobs, three jobs, my son my daughter gets popped at the end of the day most people in the community don't have an iota of an idea of what to do so they're led by what the court system uh, thinks and unfortunately so many people think the court system is a fair system and the way they express when you go to court, uh, you'll hear the, uh, the prosecutor and the de- defense attorney, they'll sit there and they'll basically paint a picture that we'll do ABC and this is gonna be the best thing for you and this is the way everything is gonna work out, trust us, and then they end up in a situation that you guys so eloquently expressed.
6: I mean, I'm, I was sitting here reading some, um, the stasis the that you've you given me, Rosa, where it talked about that more than 200 people have been wrongfully convicted of murder, rape, or serious offenses since 1989. This is just in yeah. the state of California. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's 200 people. I mean, can you, and, and we're talking about the, the, the what's really disturbing about those kind of cases. About this statistic, is if you think a murder and a rape, as you know, as obviously carry you know very lengthy sentences. But it's because of innocence projects and places like that mm-hmm. they can use DNA mm-hmm. to get. In. This mm-hmm. is just the people that they've been able to use the mm-hmm. DNA. However, as you know, there's a lot of cases where like assaults, you know, and different type of uh, crimes that aren't necessarily where DNA may not even be come into play, like mm-hmm. even drug offenses right. and other offenses like that, where if you're convicted, the, the likelihood of you being exonerated if you're convicted unjustly is huge, mm-hmm. you see what I mean? And so th- the numbers have to be significantly larger than 200 people that mm-hmm. are actually convicted of these crimes unjustly. Mm-hmm. And that's that's disturbing, that's, that's extremely disturbing. And so you have to ask yourself this question and, and, and I mean the listening public and has mm-hmm. to really think about that, that mm-hmm. it's yeah. easy for you to be accused Yes, it of is. a crime that you did not commit. Oh,
5: right?
1: Yes it is. Yeah. Well, if I may say, I mean it's so easy that there is, you know, 60 out of 630,000 people that are in jail today. 430,000 of them. 70% are in pre-trial detention for, you know, things that they didn't commit or they were stopped for a minor misdemeanor. Yeah. So that to me is really exasperating because it's kind of like we have to reach these boiling points and we go back to the death of Eric Gardner and Michael Brown and we were talking about last week of Stefan Clark for us to kind of realize the, the 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 you know the the seriousness of these issues. Mm-hmm. So to me it's it's truly you know impactful that we're actually talking about this stuff because it's happening in our communities and it's truly um, important for us to empower our communities to kind of come out and realize that yes there is a public defender, there's people that you can elect, mm-hmm. there's people that you can you know have a vote for and to also understand the 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 backgrounds that these individuals are coming from, because like, you know, um, Mr. be just mentioned, it is hard for these people to kind of engage sometimes. So I guess my question is, you know, kind of, how how can we bring these people into, you know, out of their homes and, and, and have them get involved in this process of, you know, electing their individuals and being more active in that aspect? And also, how can we engage and create more accountability right. for, you know, our government officials to kind of, you know, really uh, advocate for those individuals whom they say they are going to mm-hmm. kind of represent in Congress or in the legislative field or anywhere that they are, mm-hmm. so.
6: That's true. I mean... I, I, I mean, the the thing that I have to say, I mean, it, that is thing. I mean, we do have to begin to start taking responsibility and taking our communities back. There uh, has yes. to be that yes. that uh, you know uh, initiative to go out and try to do things and try yeah. to uh, prosecutors the jury system that we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have to be uh, have to get up, go out, and mm-hmm. we have to do things. We can't yeah. just sit yeah. back and yes. complain. Yeah. about what's going on well, we have to definitely get involved and do something about it because some you know if you're going to wait for somebody to do something for you mm-hmm. it'll never happen
4: exactly and you, know? it, you have to be proactive i mean you know i've often heard uh, Akil Bashir always say you know we in the trenches we out there with them you right. know we we dealing with the youth we dealing with the gang members That's and right. the individuals in the community and the thing about it is it's a sad reality because until it affects someone Directly, they don't want to be involved mm-hmm. and I think this is a, a, a Awesome platform to actually put it yes. out there to educate the public whether it be on a, the misconduct issue whether it be on, on um, Whether it be on the police brutality, but the thing of it is is People are still sitting back in the confines of their home and they just don't want to be involved mm-hmm. Until they get affected by it mm-hmm. and then once they, you know, we talked about this not too long ago where you know you go out and you have the rallies and then you don't see no rallies no more until the next, you know, police shooting, you know, and, and and it's a shame, you know. And you ask the question, how can, you know, we get people more involved? I mean, we've been talking for years, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been talking about this for years and I, I you know, it's it's kinda it's kinda heartening when you sit up here and you talk and you talk and you wonder when is you know, when people gonna really, you know, take heed to what's going on. Right.
6: You know. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be a lot more pro- proactiveness in the
7: community. I was, the I was looking at, uh, I, think, I think it was an article I read, um, and uh, somebody, whoever wrote this article, said that 10% of the state budget goes um, on prison funding, funding the prisons, and 7% goes on education. So that's a 3% difference there. And, um, and it just, I can't, I can't forget this article I read. I, I took a class when I was an undergrad at Cal State Fullerton, And um, it was a criminal justice course, and the professor said, you guys are all criminal justice students. I'm gonna get (laughs) you into the library, and you're gonna start reading scholarly (laughs) articles. I'm gonna show you guys how to look at this research. So he goes, pick any random scholarly article in the criminal justice section and read it. And these things are like boring, they look scientific, and I mean, I actually wrote a thesis, a master's thesis, so I I, I learned how to write like this later on in life. But at the time, I was 22 years old, and I'm thinking, what is this crap? Um, but it was really interesting because the, the article I chose that I selected was, uh, had to do with the correlation between education and recidivism. Mm. And the, mm. they did this big study and they found as education went up, recidivism went down mm-hmm. for these individuals. Mm-hmm. So say for instance, um, and I, I guess they tracked all these people who had either been convicted, had been in prison or whatever. Um, the ones who had earned say high school diplomas it was like maybe 50% of them went back to jail. The ones who earned AA degrees, it went down to like 30%. The ones who earned bachelor's degrees, it was like 15%. The ones who earned graduate degrees, master's doctorates, it was almost negligible. So as education went up for these individuals, crime or their recidivism rates, their reoffending went down. And so what does that tell us? I mean, scientifically, that's a scientific study That that tells us, I'm not saying education is the answer for everybody but it's one thing that works so why aren't we focusing on things like that
5: but you know that's that's a very excellent point you bring up ralph because what education does it provides additional options and see this is what happens time and time again if i don't have options what we talked about last week i'm gonna go with those things that are placed before me Mm -hmm. you know in our community and mike you said it so well we have too many volunteer victims We have to stop that mentality. We have to change that mentality. People think uh, they want to get motivated, and so when they get motivated, they're going to take action. But it's actually the other way around. Action is what is indicative of motivation coming the action comes first and then the motivation comes We sit back too often and we wait for somebody to define the reality in which we operate from and that's what community ownership is It's mandated that we have to if we're going to own our communities. We have to search out knowledge We have to search out that uh, that component that is going to move us in a self-defining direction And we don't do that enough and that is something that we have to uh, uh, and instill back in our communities nobody owes you anything moving forward look I love my communities to death I'm in the streets every day but at the same token what really bothers me is the handicapping of the individuals in the community feeling that they cannot uh, become self-determined in leading their own direction mm-hmm. we have to change that mindset absolutely, mm-hmm.
6: absolutely. That's, that's really important we definitely have to begin to start making uh, some sort of sacrifice, and sometimes mm-hmm. the sacrifices I mean voting mm-hmm. are going to jury duty mm-hmm. I mean and, and being involved, you know, mm-hmm. and so you know we have to continue to go back to the state of being proactive yes. and not reactive, mm-hmm. you know I mean, and I think that we get comfortable and until it affects someone in our homes or someone we know personally, then we don 't want to do anything and and th- you know and, and that's something that um if we don't change that, then they're not going to change it for us. It's going to continue to be the, mm-hmm. the same way. Do, do right. you think
4: we, do we think we actually look for a leader to actually be out in the forefront to kind of guide us or give us some type of direction? That's why we sit back, because yeah. there's no one out in yes. the forefront? Yes,
6: that's exactly why. Right. I mean, you know, I've heard – I remember I had a uh, – I'm going to tell this story. I don't know if I should tell the story, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I have a um, – a Facebook page that has my law office mm-hmm. thing on it. And there's been at least two responses where the person says, "What has he done? I don't know him. Mm-hmm. What has he done for the black community?" Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, the, you know, in other words, we're always trying to figure out what anyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. The quite that's not the question. The question is Thank what you. have I done Thank you. for mm-hmm. the community? Yes. What am I doing? When is the last time I went and tried to rally individuals Teach. to go and try to, to vote? When mm-hmm. is the last time that I went and tried to educate people about the importance of jury duty? Mm-hmm. And you know, so it's all about the things that, that you're doing Teach. Mm-hmm. that really makes the difference. And until we get to a point where we're beginning to become more proactive and involved in doing things in our own community, we have the answers.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: And yes. we can't depend on someone else to lead us Mm -hmm. out of it. You have to depend, you know, on yourself, uh, to try to, to, to make these differences and to get involved. And it, it, it involves more than just putting something on Facebook or Instagram Mm -hmm. or something like that. You have to get up, you have to go out you have to, to do something and stop. As, as doc always say, you can't always be the victim. You have to go out and you have to make moves. You have to do things. You have to be involved, and it takes more than just an emotion. Yes. You know, the emotional response of, of um, protesting, and then as soon as, you know, it's like you tear up stuff, and then as soon as that's over, mm-hmm. then you don't hear anything else, and then it happens again, mm-hmm. and then it happens again, and it's happening again. I mean, it's, you know, there's solutions out there, and we need to rally those who are concerned in our communities and those who aren't in our communities mm-hmm. that are concerned uh, to get involved and stuff like that. And, and, and speaking of that, I think that we talked about earlier about uh, Colin Kaepernick. I think you had something on Colin Kaepernick. What, did, what happened recently with him?
1: So um, recently he was awarded um, uh, an award for the Ambassador of Conscience Award on Saturday for, through um, Amnesty International. So it says the Ambassador of Conscious award celebrates the spirit of activism and exceptional courage um, and since Ka- Kaepernick is an athlete who is now widely recognized for his activism because of his refusal to ignore or accept racial re- discrimination. So basically he was given an award for kind of standing up for his beliefs in the NFL so yeah. Yeah.
6: So uh, and we're, we're talking about trying to be active and I mean you know everybody Colin Kaepernick has been a big, a big subject of, of, of debate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for a long time, about the fact—I mean, of course—they attacked his patriotism because he refused uh, to to not stand for the for the for the flag. And and I've always been the type of person who believed that. Um, I mean, it's about the message. I think more than his actions. Like, for example, let's just say that Tom Brady decided <laughs> he wanted to take a knee because he was concerned with, let's just say. Uh, our support for law enforcement officers. Mm-hmm. So he takes and he says, "Our country, I don't believe that we support law enforcement officers the way that they do." Oh. I wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. you know what I mean? I mean, I, I mean, I would. I mean, I would. I would respect his right to to do that.
7: Well, it's just like the Riverside police officers who killed Taisha Miller yeah. shaving their heads. Yeah, years ago, and I, and I don't think a whole lot of people remember that Good case. Good point. But they did. Yeah. Uh, the white officers who killed her shaved their heads. In, in solidarity, and they had every right to do that. That was their constitutional right to do that. And I told my students that the other day in class, one of them said, "Trump this, Trump that," and I said, "You have every right to say that." I said, "Just like um, the opposing side does." And I think that um, that we do have to respect each other's views. But but yeah, I mean, it's it's um, people get so inflamed because mm-hmm. they're they're small-minded, right. you know, and they see things from their perspective. And whenever a, a different perspective is thrown at them uh they they just can't tolerate it no. you know and um uh, and and so you know um another thing i was going to say is as we're talking about these issues a lot of them are are the social issues are, are kind of the are kind of where everything kind of flows from you know mm-hmm. it's like it's like the biblical story of cain and abel you know cain said am i my brother's keeper of course you are you are yeah. your brother's keeper mm-hmm. you know and i think until uh, we start to realize that in society that yeah you know you you are to you are to you know care for the community. You're you you have an obligation. You're a member of society. You're a member of community. Don't wait for somebody else to rally, to stand up, to address these issues. Why don't you do it? Mm-hmm. You know, you organize something. Right. You go out there and spread the word. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we I think there has to be some some sort of personal um, conviction that we have oh. a, a, of of obligation mm-hmm. to address these issues. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all about the greatness
6: of you know, um, and I'll be the first to say. I mean, you know, I, I I served in the military. I'm proud of the fact that I served in the military, and um, I believe that um, America's you know, in many ways, is the best act in town. But it depends on your reference point. Yeah. It's those protests yeah. that made us great. It is yeah. the protest of individuals such as Brown v. Board of Education. Yeah. I think you look at the Brown v. Board of Education and the aftermath of the civil rights movement and all the civil rights acts that came out of that made us a great nation. You know, it's protest.
5: Well, you know, taking a stand is not taking a seat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. When we protest, first of all, let's clearly understand we have a human right to protest not a legal right to protest. Being humans in this society gives us a right to protest. See, we far too often we forget the human rights in terms of the the worldwide perspective. You know, when you look at uh, Minister Malcolm, he was killed because he wanted to take America before the International Court, which was the UN. Usually a protest is usually started by one or two individuals. They are upset because the the conditions that they are currently in, they cannot tolerate them any longer. So protest is inevitable, and they stand up and protest. And I think most people, when I, I look at the young adults today, uh, I was there for the 65 uh, revolt. I was there for the 92 revolt. I was on the ground in that revolt uh, because I think it was so imperative. And let's be clear, it was not riots. It was revolts. People were revolting against the conditions that were prevalent at the time. And when you, when you think about... Um, you know, the the, the nature of protests, okay, look at what Colin did. This was a silent protest, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. First, you're condemned for physical protests. Mm -hmm. You're condemned for aggressive protests. Mm -hmm. But here was a man who took a knee to protest uh, what he felt was unjust conditions uh, by a certain group of people, and then he was basically assassinated for that So you tell me the context of protest by the people in power. What type of protest would they like? Would they like the type of protest did, Or would they like the protest of 65 and 72 uh, of a very aggressive nature? You know, we have to look at that uh, that, that dogma. And I would say lastly, I think we, us on the ground in the communities who think we're protesting is a big difference between a, uh, um, a protest, I, how, how best can I say this, a movement and a moment. A real protest is a movement. You combine, you get people together and you move for a cause and then you try to create the conditions the change that cause which is the betterment of all. But a movement, uh, excuse me, a, a moment is when we, as Michael so alluded to, we go out, and you did too, Brother Ali. We physically engage on a, on a uh, emotional level. We feel good. We ran and rave, and then we go back. There's no plan of action. There's no strategic structure in place. There's no uh, infrastructure to move us in a direction. That's useless.
6: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's kind of the, when we look at, we always like to end up, talking about solutions and I appreciate you your your input I know that your experience I mean we've worked together before in the past quite a bit a lot actually and I know that basically uh, we talk about prosecutors we want to encourage our people to find out who your prosecutor is who your DA is get involved do what you you know what you need to do uh, to to hold these, these individuals accountable and so uh, I guess that's it for this edition. We've run out of time, I believe. Again, thank you mm-hmm. again for <laughs> Investigator Rocha. Thank you for having me. And uh, uh, my team, uh, Rosa Nunez, Michael Belal-Clark, and Dr. Akil Bashir. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Justice Watch with Zulu Ali. I'm Zulu Ali, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same place, same channel. Good evening.